All right, welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm Patrick, the co-founder and CEO of Sonogenetics. And today's episode is all about Alzheimer's disease. Um, and we have not one, but actually two great guests. We have Renee George from Healthlytics, uh, based out of San Diego, and Xing Su from Dash Genomics, based out of San Francisco. Uh, so welcome both of you to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you great. for having us. Yeah, of course. So, Renee, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just giving a quick background on yourself, how you got into um, Alzheimer's disease and, and genetic risk prediction in general, and then seeing if you could do the same, that'd be great. Um, sure. So, I'm Renee George. I'm a bioinformatics data scientist at Healthlytics in San Diego. Um, I have a PhD in genome sciences. Um, I then did postdoctoral training at the Whitehead Institute in Boston, where I studied the contribution of rare variants to male infertility. Um, and since then, I've made my way to um, industry and have gotten interested in working with polygenic risk scores um, and now working on polygenic risk scores related to Alzheimer's disease. Great. Xing, how about you? Hello, everyone. My name is Xing, and I'm the head of uh, Bioinformatics and one of co-founder of Dash Genomics. Uh, I got my PhD in computational biology, and then I go directly into the industry uh, as bioinformatician. Then I find my passion in actually product development. Uh, after my first job at LabTech, I joined BGI, Complete Genomics, uh, Genos, uh, various of uh, biotech and personal genomic company and pursue my passion in product development. Great. So, so Renee, you mentioned polygenic risk scores, and I think we'll get into those in a little bit more detail. I was wondering if, if before we go there, do you mind just taking a step back and explaining what we currently know about some of the causes of, of Alzheimer's disease, both from a genetic and, and non-genetic perspective, and, and what we're still trying to understand? Um, sure. Uh, so we know a fair bit about, um, well, there's still a lot to learn about, about what causes Alzheimer's disease, but we know that there's a pretty strong genetic component, and that's generally coming from twin studies where we can estimate the heritability of Alzheimer's disease. And um, for late onset, that comes out to about 60 to 80%. So we're looking at heritability estimates that are kind of roughly on par with um, like height. Um, in terms of the specifics, uh, so in addition to genetics, we know that age is a risk factor. So late onset Alzheimer's right. disease occurs in older individuals. Um, it's defined as, as uh, occurring in individuals older than 65 years old. Um, we know that there's also some lifestyle factors that are associated um, with Alzheimer's disease, such as obesity, high cholesterol levels, um, blood pressure. There's also an interesting link between cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease that um, is not fully understood. And also, if we go kind of a little bit deeper into the genetics, because we're going to be talking a lot more about the genetics of Alzheimer's today. Um, so we know that Alzheimer's disease is primarily been associated with common genetic variants. The one with the largest contribution is uh, genetic variants at a locus called APOE. So APOE um, is a gene on chromosome 19. And there are two SNPs at the APOE locus that define your APOE status. Um, and we know that there are different versions of your APOE status and the high risk version, which is the APOE E4 allele, um, confers about a two to four fold increased risk in developing Alzheimer's di disease, depending on whether you have one or two copies present. Right. So, so what's the general kind of population risk? And then what would be the risk 
of someone carrying one of these genetic variants? Do you know roughly? So the roughly the lifetime population risk of Alzheimer's disease is about 15%. So if you have a twofold increased in risk for one copy of E4, you're looking at about 30% um, lifetime risk for developing Alzheimer's disease, uh, and then up to another 45% for having two right. copies. Yeah, and, and I guess where the polygenic risk score gets in or, or polygenic risk in general is, as you said, most of the risk is, most of the risk that we understand today is from common variants, but actually not not all of it clearly. And, and there's still quite a bit to be understood. So would you mind just explaining what a polygenic risk score is, how yourselves at Healthlytics have developed them, and then and then we can get into DASH as well and how it's being applied there. Sure. So a polygenic risk score is, um, it's a score that represents your risk for a disease um, based on your genetics. Um, and it combines information from many genetic variants throughout the genome, each of those variants contributing a small amount to your total risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, so, and at Healthlytics, we incorporate about 200,000 genetic variants into our polygenic risk score. Um, so it's basically, mathematically, it's, it's a weighted sum of all of these genetic variants um, into this final score. And then kind of the magnitude of this score uh, is correlated with your risk for Alzheimer's disease. So about how much of that weighted sum comes from APOE, for example, and how much comes from the other 199? A really large part um, comes from APOE. Um, in terms of the percentage of the score, I don't have that number off the top of my head, but if we're talking about like performance metrics, if we're looking at like area under the curve, um, so we get an area under the curve for our whole polygenic risk score that includes APOE status of about 87%. And with APOE alone, we're, we're pretty close to that, probably 83, 84%. Right. So, so it adds about 5%. Adding, right. Okay. And just for people who haven't heard of the area under the curve, basically if, if it's, if the score is one or a hundred, then you're predicting perfectly who's got it and who doesn't. If it's 50, then it's basically like a random draw. These can be a bit challenging to interpret though when the when it's not balanced, right? If only 10% of people get Alzheimer's. But nonetheless, it's a it's a far it's a far better predictor than just saying we don't know, right? So it's a it's a good it's a very good place to start. And it's and it's at least useful for you know comparing relative things. So yeah. while what the interpretation to like a consumer of an 87% AUC is not that clear, um, we can at least do comparisons for like APOE only versus APOE plus um, our polygenic information. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, I, I think the point about the consumer is a perfect segue because I, so, so seeing at Dash, you all have a consumer facing version of this test, which shows basically a lifetime. I've seen your plots and they're, and they're really interesting from the perspective of a scientist, your, your lifetime risk at different points within the next five years, 10 years, total risk based on the genetic score. So, so clearly it is useful in that context, right? And you can statistically um, predict how likely someone is, at least based on people that have similar genetic background. Sure. So, um, so Dash actually is a veteran of a genomic industry. So uh, our team actually specialized in 
you know, understand how the data is generated and how we analyze the data and, and how we do build a scalable secure system to present the data. And we also have the team members specialized in translate the scientific result into consumer-friendly fashion language and also find the right partner to bring value to our user. And more importantly, we know how to practice within the legal boundary, respect, privacy, and regulatory requirements. And uh, when our first company got acquired, we still feel a lot of excitement left in our hearts. So that's why we found, uh, we found Dash. And we see continued rise of personal genomics. Uh, for example, more and more people getting their ge uh, genetic information from like 20MC3andMe, uh, Ancestry, and Genos, our previous company. And currently, one of the major usage for this genomic information is still Ancestry composition analysis. We believe there is more value within the genomic information still not yet untapped. Uh, so, and so then we, we start doing our marketing research. You know, uh, people looking different way to understand and interpret their results and want to access more information. And, and we noticed that trying to know the risk for Alzheimer's disease ranked the number two in the uh, most people, uh, most consumer want list. Right. So this is in one of the marketing report from uh, Rock Health, uh, uh, a venture capital firm specializing in healthcare industry and also confirmed with Anne Bochiski, you know, mentioned in one of his, her interviews. So when I first get access to the PRS score for Alzheimer's, we're very excited about. And then we reach to the, the author, and then we notice, actually, they are building their own company, Healthlytics, and then we start to uh, collaborate. So what we did, actually, we trying to expand the model from the original, you know, 29 loci to, to adopt to, for um, 23 and me and ancestry data files. So we do a lot of QC because you know you cannot trust all the variant calls actually in those raw data file. We find a lot of variants actually consistently miscalled or missed for, for the computation. So we start to, to, doing the QC, we build a very robust uh, way to, to validate our, our, the, the quality. And eventually we select you know, 200,000 very high confidence loci and use that to calculate the risk based on me and Ancestry data file. Right. And before that, you know, all the uh, users will just look into papers. There's no automatically for the, for the consumer to tap into this information, but uh, we provide an automated way to access those information. Right, so basically any, anyone can, anyone who's done 23andMe or Ancestry DNA can upload their file on your website and, and how much does it cost? And they get basically another, they pay for another report. Right. So um, we are currently so so the 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 retail price is one forty nine, but we are currently running a promotion for one ninety nine. So if you sign up uh, a email list, I think the price will be one oh nine. What does uh, so? And maybe this is a good um, you know time to bring Renee back in because you focus on this similar application of a test, but to the healthcare system. So, so Xing, if someone takes a test from Dash and finds that they're, I mean, I assume the motivation for most people for this is they have a family history potentially of Alzheimer's and, and they're motivated about learning, you know, learning more about whether they're likely to be affected. It, what happens if they actually find out that their 
in the high risk category? Is there, what, what can people do about it today? Um, so for, for that question, actually, so first, when you're identified as a high risk, so we're, we're actually not reporting, you know, we, we did not, uh, you know, classify category people into different risk category. We just right. objectively present the information. And even for people, you know, considering the, in the, uh, how high PR, uh, PHS scores, so it doesn't mean he or she will definitely get the disease. Right. And, and the, the reason we want to present the results is because we believe the knowledge is powerful because, uh, because we know, you know, when the symptoms show up, it is just too late to do anything. Right. You, you know, reasonably, there's a couple of high profile clinical trial failed and, and pharmaceutical company actually terminates, you know, research program for Alzheimer's disease. That's because when they recruit the patients, you know, the symptom has show up. And, and, and so all the kind of drugs, you know, antibodies just do nothing to, to stop it. So from our point of view, because the brain start to change, you know, 15 or 20 years before the symptoms show up. So we think if we offer this information, so people have time to adjust like lifestyle uh, to prevent or delay Alzheimer's disease. I think more and more evidence and emerging uh, at that front, right? So, so slightly lifestyle change maybe help you to prevent or delay Alzheimer's. Yeah, I guess it's really... Um it's really tricky to, to do that kind of research to say, if we present people, I, I know they've, um, there are a number of researchers that are working on similar approaches in cardiovascular disease. So you find out you're high risk and, and you can change your behavior. One of the challenges I imagine with Alzheimer's disease is the follow-up window. You're nodding, Renee. I think this maybe is a problem yeah. you face. The follow-up window might be decades. Is that, so, is that because I know you all are more on the healthcare system side? Are these the kind of questions you get? How do we know that there's anything we can do about this early detection? Right. I mean, I think that that's been one of the biggest challenges for us, kind of trying to move into the healthcare system. Is what do you do when you have a result that's high risk? You know, there are no therapies that um, you can take to delay or stop right. the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I mean, there has been some literature, as Xing mentioned, on lifestyle modifications um, that have been shown to reduce risk of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I think from a healthcare professional, it can also be very useful in terms of a like differential diagnosis right. um, perspective. So a, lo a lot of times the clinicians that we work with are seeing patients that come in with memory complaints. Um, and so they'll get the genetic testing done for this reason. And so it can help them rule out, is this um, early dementia due to Alzheimer's disease or potentially um, something else? And also, uh, I think it can be useful to know your, your genetic risk of Alzheimer's disease for you know, future planning, you know, how to yeah. um, plan your life and, and you know, set aside money for the future. Right. You probably get this question a lot, but how does it work in terms of insurance? This is almost always the question people ask when it comes to predicting genetic risk. Is are, Do you get that concern from people that if they find out they're high risk, they might have life insurance companies that discriminate against them, for example? I So we, have, we actually haven't gotten that issue, but I, um, I think that might be primarily because we're, we're interfacing with clinicians and not necessarily the patients that right. 
clinicians are working with. So maybe the, um, those are questions the clinicians are getting. Um, but so we don't, we don't get that too much. I mean, we definitely get lots of questions of, will our genetic tests be covered by insurance? And right. so far, the answer to that in the U.S. is no. Is that right? Yeah. So why is that? Um, so I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on the ins and outs of our insurance system, but I, I think that maybe they just haven't been kind of sort of on the market and validated for long enough to kind of trickle, trickle down to the insurance companies being convinced to use them. Right. It's going to take some time to build a case that it makes sense financially and, and all that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so Renee, who, who is your, oh, go ahead. What were you going to say, Shing? <clears throat> yeah, we do have customer saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. With that information, we, I, I actually serious consider long term uh, insurance. Right, and and what um what what do you, you what do you say to them? Do you basically say it's a risk and um you know there's nothing you can do to guarantee it, or how do you normally handle that conversation? I think it's all up to the consumer. We don't recommend to, to the consumer to do anything, but. Uh, he, if if he think you know this information provide more value and and more productivity for him and yeah he some of the our users actually take actions right yeah it's <clears throat> uh and i guess the legislation there's there's always a threat that it might change and you know i'm mm -hmm. here in the uk but in the i'm from the us originally that the genetic information non discrimination act might you know might not be in force in the same way forever so it's uh it's sure really hard from a consumer perspective to know, but it, for, you know, like you say, for most people, it's a, it's a personal decision at the end of the day, right? Yes. Do, do you all ever think about launching your own at-home test in the same way as 23andMe or, or Ancestry DNA? I guess, Renee, in your case, you're working already with clinicians who are drawing blood, but, or are there, I mean, there's, there's, I think, more than 25 million people who've done one of these tests already, so, is actually just applying the algorithm to people who've already been tested. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we actually, we partner with, um, with a genetics testing company called Diagnomics. Um, and so th there are Diagnomics um, like saliva collection kits at the clinician's office right. uh, that the patient can spit in the tube and send back. And then that allows us to offer our test um, to be as CLIA certified. Right. Um, I don't think we would have planned for offering our own testing kits. That's uh, require a lot of heuristic efforts to, to make it happen. So, yeah. Right, so let somebody else handle all the mailing and collecting and you guys can focus on, like you said, the, the quality control and the algorithms and making that part better. Yes, I think, you know, uh, there's like a 15 million of users have 23 million ancestry uh, data and, and that number still keep growing, right? So. <laughs> Uh, if we do our job right, we, we should, we should uh, grasp a, a very good number of those users. Yeah, it's a, it seems to me like as this number continues to grow, healthcare systems should start to think more seriously about how can we take, I know there are issues with genotype arrays are not always, especially for rare variants, they're not always accurate, but they're, for polygenic risk scores, it seems like 15 million people, I know there's about half a million here in the UK, if you can leverage the data that already exists and try to bring it into the healthcare system, it seems like it ought to be a very cost-effective way to start to identify people that are, that are at high risk or, or at least elevated risk for some of these common diseases. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
So I, I had a couple of questions about the development of the algorithms themselves. So would, would one of you all mind just explaining the difference between early and late onset Alzheimer's, what we know about the differences biologically and, and also how the genetic tests work today is, uh, are you all mainly working on getting better at diagnosing one form or the other, or is it about splitting people into different groups or, you know, what's the state of the, the field? Um, early onset Alzheimer's is typically defined as Alzheimer's disease that develop in people younger than 65 years old. Um, it's fairly rare, I count about like 5% of all Alzheimer's disease cases and tend to follow a more uh, aggressive course than the late onset Alzheimer's disease. I think the uh, healthlytics or our product is actually focused on late onset uh, Alzheimer's. So we're actually not looking to those genes. I, I think right. uh, Renee might have more added on. Yeah, I mean, I think we can think of early onset Alzheimer's disease as kind of like the more severe form of Alzheimer's disease. And this kind of follows a lot of the uh, kind of paradigms we see in a lot of diseases, the genetic uh, basis of a lot of diseases. So what we know about the genetics of early onset Alzheimer's disease is um, rare variants and uh, deleterious rare variants. So coding variants in specifically three genes, um, APP, PSEN1, and PSEN2, which are all involved in um, processing of beta amyloid, um, have been, rare variants have been identified in those genes in about 10% of early onset cases. Um, there's still, you know, 90% of yeah. that um, have yet to be explained, but my guess is that probably looking at, um, looking at rare variants uh, rare coding variants is going to be really important in that respect. I will also mention there's an interesting, so APOE uh, is a risk factor for late onset Alzheimer's disease, but we still do see um, an effect of APOE in early onset cases as well. So, um, so there can be families that are segregating early onset Alzheimer's disease and also high-risk APOE alleles. And um, it turns out that having APOE plus one of these rare variants will still modify the age of onset of Alzheimer's right. disease. So they will kind of synergistically act and um, have an even earlier age of onset for possessing both of them. But, but APOE itself is specifically associated with late onset. What, what are the biggest um, sets of people or, or data sets in late onset Alzheimer's that you all work with? Uh, the healthlytics score, is that based on the UK Biobank or is it based on other data sets? It's not. So there's, um, there's a large uh, Alzheimer's consortium called ADGC, Alzheimer's Disease Genomics Consortium. And I'm trying to remember the numbers, but I think that there are, so for our, so we actually, let me just step back a second. We use a variant of the polygenic risk score called a polygenic hazard score. Um, and the only difference between these two scores is that we use a hazard ratio as our SNP weights instead of odds ratios. Right. Uh, but so this means that we can't use summary statistics from GWAS studies to build our polygenic hazard score. So we have to go back to the raw data. And so the numbers that we've been using um, to build our polygenic hazard score model have been about 30,000 Alzheimer's disease cases and controls. But I'm pretty sure that the some of the larger GWASs that have been recently published are in the like three, four hundred thousand. Right. 
but you can't use that data because of the you require access to we require we require raw data access to the raw data which our collaborators at UCSD do have um, access to the ADGC data but in addition to requiring access to the raw data we also require age of onset information right. to be present so that restricts the samples that we can actually use from that so data. it's not an either it's not an either or you have it or you don't but you actually and, that, right. and that's where the polygenic hazard versus the risk right. right where you can start to predict age that makes sense it, it seems it seems like probably we'll have to get to hundreds of thousands or millions of people to really start to pick apart some of these differences, right? Even in the case of Alzheimer's, where there may be one gene that's doing a lot of the heavy lifting, there's, there's so many right. others that we need to understand. Yeah, and I think that we're really, you know, excited to take advantage of UK Biobank um, data as well. I think the one of the main issues with that is that the age of the participants in the UK Biobank are um, kind of skewed a little bit younger, so there just aren't that many Alzheimer's disease cases in that data set. So, but I think in maybe 10 years or so, it's going to be a really powerful data set for us. So we've been talking so far about genotype data, which is a, a earlier form of technology that looks at usually between half a million and a million places in the DNA where you've picked ahead of time. These are the places we're going to look. And there's, there's all sorts of interesting statistical techniques that allow you to take the genotype data and turn it into whole genome-like by using some statistical predictions. But it's not really a, it's not really a substitute for a whole, whole genome sequence. So I was wondering if you all have started working with that kind of data, it's more expensive, you, you generate a lot more information about rare variants. Do you see that as a new frontier about where these scores are going or, or is actually the cost effective genotype still kind of the, the way to go in terms of this? Um, I mean, I think at least for us, for the foreseeable future, we are planning to stick with common variants and the common variants that we can ascertain off of, off of a, a genotype chip. Um, we are kind of down the road looking into some other diseases like prostate cancer, but other diseases where there's going to be a much larger rare variant component we think um, involved. And there we're kind of starting to think about how we can take advantage of some technologies to gather to get both the common variant component and the rare variant component. Um, there are some like sequencing based uh, targeted sequencing based approaches where maybe you can target all of your common variants plus maybe 10 or 20 um, genes that would be important for rare variants. And is that the case for you, Singh? I guess the vast majority of consumers don't have whole genome sequence data or even exome sequence data. Right. So I think we are just following the market. Right now, I think uh, genotyping data is still the majority of the, the market. And I think when we see more and more uh, whole exome sequencing, even whole genome sequencing, uh, you know, adopted by the users, then we can consider, you know, if we want to ship to that front. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Do, so, so if we kind of look forward in the next five years or so, where, what do you guys see as the best case scenario for this? Obviously the, the algorithms and prediction continue to improve, but, but how about the adoption side? Do you, do you think the key is getting this into the healthcare system? Do you think it's empowering consumers? Do you think it's pairing with digital apps? Maybe like you mentioned seeing earlier where you can 
take a high risk and actually try to modify it in some way? What do you see as the, you know, the, the exciting new frontiers? So I, I think one of the frontiers, I think polygenic risk score definitely become more and more popular. And we, we're also looking for other opportunities for uh, polygenic risk score for other indications, for example. And I think uh, as a platform, Dash platform, we really want to connect the, the data to the research. So we, we are doing a lot of partnerships. So for example, we partnership with OutForums, we partner with Open Human, APOE4, Info Forum, and Genetic Life Hacks. So all those forms, I, we are trying to bring partner into the play, right? And, and we want the, uh, our user access those most advanced state of art the information. And also at the same time, if any research actually need those genotyping data, and, and we are make sure you know, if the user actually consent provide this, uh, pro provide their data to the research, uh, they can do so. Yeah. Yeah, so. that's a great, great segue. Actually, I was going to ask one of uh, anyone who listens to the podcast regularly knows that I go on and on about consent and research and how important it is for people to understand how their data is being used and and own their data. How how does it work for? For both of you all, do you? I imagine you have a lot of Alzheimer's researchers that are getting in touch to say, you know, this is a really, this is a really powerful resource or a data set. Do you do you make these opportunities available to people who are part of the platform, or um, you know, how does how does it work exactly? So we currently only offer report and do not share the data with researcher yet. However, we're looking in the future connect, as I, as I said, I, we provide the connection between the user and uh, research study. And um, um, to the extent we partner with uh, any researchers, you know, user definitely will have control over their data. So we will not share data without any consent. And, uh, and, and uh, we actually store our data in our very secure pla data platform and all the data is encrypted and all the data in the database is encrypted as well. And for even for people in a, like a different team within the company will not access this, you know, uh, personalized information. When, even when we share the data with um, Healthletics, they don't have the contact information. Yeah, yeah great. And how, how about with you, Renee? Are you, um, you're probably closer, you know, you're, you're less at the interface of patient data and transferring it to researchers, but really powering the research itself, right? Right, I mean, so it's, we're working directly with, with clinicians. So, um, I mean, we, you know, store all of the data that's generated in our um, secure cloud storage, uh, but we only store it for a short period of time before it gets deleted and have no plans currently to um, develop any of, any of these data into a research data set. Yeah, it, it I mean, to, to your point, Singh, about contacting everyone every time, it feels like that's that should be the new norm now, especially in in a industry where so much trust is required, right? You're holding on to somebody's very sensitive data that uh, hopefully there's a new norm that's being set that direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, healthcare providers in general will you know just step their game up a little bit in terms of actually how how patient data is uh, is handled. Right. I, I, I think, you know, privacy and, and data security is the highest priority as of any personal genomic company. I think in, in our previous company, we even saying, 
you know, the user actually own their data, right? So yeah. if, if their data got used, they have got the financial benefit from it. So, uh, so at Dash, we, do, we currently didn't go that far, but uh, I think, you know, that that's the goal we're 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 hiding to. Okay. Yeah, I'd actually love to. I, I was very familiar with Genos, and I know a couple of years ago you became part of Nant Health. Um, just for anyone who hasn't heard of the company, would you mind just explaining the the premise behind Genos? I know you gave out some free exome sequences. You allowed people to purchase their own exome sequences, and and it was around exactly what you just said: owning your data and having control over it. What's the what is where Genos lives on inside Nant Health today? I guess. Yeah. So uh, I think after Genos uh, was acquired, and uh, uh, so our team actually left the company, but uh, I I think we still have our friends in the team, and 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 they are doing very good. Great. Yeah. It's um. There's it's it's important to see that these new models are emerging and actually healthcare systems are recognizing it as a, you know, the right way and viable way to engage participants in research. Indeed. Yes. I, I think the more challenge for Exxon or for whole, whole genome sequencing is that they really need to find the right user case for those amount of data. This is just generally a huge amount of data compared to the genotype data. Right. right. So, um, I, I don't think, uh, they find the killer app yet, but I think they're on the way. Yeah, what, what do you think the killer app is? Maybe this is a, this would be a good way to close out the podcast here. Um, I think uh, risk for Alzheimer's disease might be, and other related for, for like um, uh, carrier screens, I think might be very interesting because it's just uh, reduce a lot of risk to, for uh, de facto, babies, right? So that, that will lift a lot of burdens from society as well. I, and uh, I think it's just move things into the right direction. Right. So being able to screen for, for devastating diseases as early as, early yes. as possible. Before, yeah. yes. Before it happens. Yes. What do you, what do you think, Renee? Is, what's, your, what's your killer application for genomics? Is it, uh, is it Alzheimer's as well? Or I know you're working on cancer as well. I mean, I think... Um, I would I would definitely say for you know early screening, um, not necessarily Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's you know plus lots of other things. I think you know cardiovascular disease is a great application of yeah. genetics right now. Um, cancer is going to be uh, a great application for it. And I think you know getting it done early, um, knowing your risk for various, knowing your genetic risk for these various diseases, and then being proactive at that point, whether it means you know lifestyle modification or, you know, other types of screening to, you know, catch cancer, catch and diagnose cancer early. Yeah, I would, I would just love to see someone figure out a business model around prevention because all of the successful business models in health for the, for the most part seem to be around fixing people once they're sick or diagnosing that people are sick. And one of the challenges over here in, in the UK is the the NHS is under so much pressure to reduce costs now that anything that, you know, may have a long-term potential right. to pay off is just too risky to say we're going to incur costs now to, to potentially save it in the long run. So we, I think we need to figure out ways to, to, you know, we're starting to see, like you say, cardiovascular disease is a perfect example where the, I think the science is heading in the right direction that we can do early prediction, but the, the economics part, we, it seems like we still haven't quite figured out. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, great. Yeah. That might be a good place to wrap it up. Is there anything I missed that you all wanted to add? Uh, yeah, so so one thing we want to add, so um, Rahul Dashkin is the, uh, the author about PHS uh, score, and he actually very supportive for, for Dash, and he passed away last month for, because of oh, ALS. Wow. Yes, he is actually a warrior himself for ALS. Um, so, so we, we really want to have use this opportunity to say thank you for him. I'm Hope so him sorry to hear rest that. in peace. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, an, another devastating disease that, you know, we've, people mm -hmm. have been trying to understand for decades now. And, uh, I'm very sorry to hear that he was one of the, one of the founders of the company, scientific advisors. Uh, he worked really, really close with us. We actually, actually in the process developing something using PHS for ARS, you know, but, right. but we have this tragic happens. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's terrible. Well, th uh, thank you for taking the time to bring it up. If there's, um, I, I suppose you guys have probably put something out on your blog or something like that, that we can share out. It's thank you very much. Uh, we, 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 we did. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. We'll make, we'll make sure we get it out there. It's, uh, it's one of those disorders that takes people so suddenly and and without sure. warning, right? It's uh, it's just terrible. Yes. Oh, and uh, our so so if you search Dash Genomics in Facebook and Twitter, you will find us, and we will pro always provide like uh, news and and tips, you know, for Alzheimer's disease. Great. So that will be a good source for you if you really want to learn about Alzheimer's. Excellent. And Renee, how about you? Where can where can they find more information? Um, so you can find more information about Healthlytics at our website, healthlytics.com. Um, it'll be information about our genetic risk products for Alzheimer's disease, as well as we have, um, in addition to genetics products, um, we have some imaging-based products as well. So you'll Great. find information about that there. Okay, wonderful. Thank you both so much. Thank you very much. Thank yeah. you for having us. Great. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And as always, you can send us any feedback you have, including questions you have, guests you'd like to see on the show, or anything else to podcast at sonogenetics.com. If you like the podcast, we'd love it if you could share with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. And then finally, feel free to visit our website, sonogenetics.com, to learn about some of the interesting research projects we're supporting right now, or to learn more about these topics through our blog. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>